What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the podcast with the best advice. This is In Their 20s. Every single week, you get to hear from the most successful business leaders about what they did when they were in their 20s. For episode 84, we had a very special guest. We brought on Miko Matsumura. He's a general partner at Gumi Crypto Capital, a Silicon Valley investment fund with over $400 million in assets, including early stage investments and many unicorns that you'll recognize like OpenSea, Yield Guild Games, and the Celsius Network. Miko fell in love with open source software 25 years ago. We spoke about his passion for crypto as well. Uh, As you can see from the title of this episode, we really want to help our listeners understand why they should be investing in crypto in their 20s and specifically Bitcoin. So we're going to dive right in with Miko. But before we do, I want to say thank you so much to our amazing sponsors for this episode, Unstoppable Wallet and Stuvo. Unstoppable Wallet is the investor-oriented asset management tool that puts privacy, open economy, and decentralization first. In a complex world of crypto, Unstoppable Wallet wants to make it easier and more accessible for everybody. They have over 20,000 downloads and they are the youngest wallet to be recommended by Bitcoin.org. So we really recommend that you check out Unstoppable Wallet at www.unstoppable.money. And of course, Stuvo. What if you could download an app that helps you earn to pay your bills? Well, now you can. I want to introduce you to Stuvo. They connect you with short-term work opportunities and guide you with a powerful AI insight so you can always reach your financial goals. They also have a special debit card that rewards you for everyday purchases. You can head over to the Apple Store and Google Play to download Stuvo today. All right, without further ado, let's jump in with Miko to hear his best advice for people in their 20s. Well, I'm super excited for this conversation and just want to say thank you again. Really privileged to speak with you um, about your 20s and best advice. Um, As I explained to you yesterday when we spoke, I love to start at the beginning for my interviews. So let's talk about your uh, college days, because I saw that you got three very interesting degrees uh, from three very different schools. First off, a BS in psychology from Michigan. Uh, Go Blue, of course. Um, You went to get a neuroscience degree from Yale and an MBA from the University of San Francisco. I'm curious how all of these experiences prepared you for the trajectory of your career. Yeah, uh, I would say that I'm very kind of grateful for these different uh, evolutionary stages, right? So in a way, like one of the things that's fascinating is that you always kind of have to go back to your childhood to sort of realize, you know, what you're kind of truly deeply fascinated by. So, you know, I've, I've always been kind of fascinated by uh, computers and personal computing. I had this kind of eight bit like computer, the Atari 400 and, you know, I, 16 K of Ram and just this kind of little wacky computer, you know, and I, I spent a ton of time on there, like building software and just having a, you know, a, a hell of a good time. Right. So in a sense, the thing that happened as a happenstance is that I went to a local, uh, university, because I, I grew up in Michigan, right? So I, I went to uh, University of Michigan, right? It was pretty nice in-state tuition, good school. It turns out that they had a number two ranked psychology department and a number, I think, 54 ranked computer science department. So, you know, despite my interest in like computers, like I really ended up gravitating towards psychology because it had such a strong uh, psych department, right? So in a sense, like, you know, as you're kind of forging your path, you really have to kind of reconcile your own interests with with what's available. The thing I didn't really know at the time is that you know I actually am a very strange 
uh, uh, temperament, if you go to 16personalities.com, they have the version of the Myers-Briggs personality mm -hmm. inventory, right? So it turns out that I'm a INFP, right? Which is alternatingly called the mediator or the healer temperament, right? So in a sense, like, uh, what I really kind of do and naturally is I kind of try to understand people and I try to kind of communicate uh, to people about either other people, which is the mediator effect, right, or about themselves, which is the healer effect, right. So as a mediator, I'm like, like, Alice, don't you understand how Bob is feeling, right. And then as a healer, I'm like, Bob, do you understand how what Bob is feeling, <laughs> right? And you know, and and then that can change Bob, right? Bob can be like, oh, I hadn't even, I didn't even understand myself, right? So, so you know, so the all of these things kind of gravitated me naturally towards like psychology, but the thing that was so interesting is I grew up in a scientific family. So like my dad was like a scientist, uh, my brother became a scientist, and like you know, so I was very much kind of like on a scientific track, right? So because of that, I ended up going towards the most scientific form of psychology, right, which was the neuroscience track. So I ended up going to uh, Yale neuroscience, uh, and I ended up studying uh, the brain, which is super interesting. You know, a lot of what I ended up doing was abstract neural network computation, which is sort of what now is being called deep learning and AI, right? So in a way, I'm really surprised to be involved in sort of blockchain venture capital, because in a way I kind of have more of an AI background, right? But it, in a sense, like, you know, life is very full of kind of twists and turns. So, you know, I would say like, you know, that that was kind of like this very interesting and, and protracted journey for me. I love that you mentioned right there. I mean, life is full of a lot of twists and turns and us 20 somethings have to deal with a lot right now. Everybody obviously is having to deal with the pandemic, but it's increasingly difficult for you younger people to try and figure out, you know, where our places in life are and what we need to be working on right now um, during this moment of uncertainty. I'm curious, you know, to hear about like a moment of uncertainty that you had to deal with in your 20s that you think really helped uh, with the overall growth of your personal and professional career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think actually leaving graduate school was kind of really epic for me, right? Because in a way, like, one of the things that happened to me in my journey, right, is that I mentioned that my dad was a scientist, like, he really kind of like, was super passionate about science. And in a way, like he didn't himself didn't know of any other life, right. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, it's pretty obvious if you're looking at the video is, you know, like I'm, I'm an Asian guy, Japanese, you know, origin. And so, you know, in a way, like one of the things that's so interesting is kind of the, the power of the family elders, right? So in a sense, we're kind of taught through the Confucius method that our parents are kind of almost godlike, right? So in a sense, like my dad was very, very like revered figure in my life, you know? And so uh, it, for him, like, you know, for me to be like leaving a, a PhD program was kind of like this huge struggle, right? Because in a way, he didn't really see any other path for survival, even for himself or for me, right? I ended up having this amazing conversation with a professor, you know, and he he kind of asked me this really challenging question, right? Which and I to this day I don't know if it was personal or not personal, but he said to me like, "What are you doing here?" You know, and I was like oh, this doesn't sound good, you know, and then he's kind of like, 
you should be out exploring the world. You should be like climbing mountains. Like you should be like going and seeing, you know, whatever you can see, right? And the thing that was really shocking to me about this conversation, you know, obviously if it was personal, he's like, you know, it's like, what specifically are you doing here? Like you obviously don't belong here. That's one way to read it, right? But the other way to read it is that he was just kind of maybe kind of offering a little nudge, right? And being like, you know, if you, if, if you really have the passion to be here, you're just going to ignore me, right? So, I, you know, I should just encourage you and see what happens, right? And, you know, but to me, it was shocking. Like, I was kind of like, uh, I'm here because this is the only possible thing that anyone could ever do in the world, right? <laughs> and you know, it was just a great lack of imagination, you know, but, but that was a huge struggle for me, like, probably one of the hardest things I ever did, because I was so kind of like, you know, wrapped around this worldview of like, mm -hmm. you know, what I had to become. Of course, because there's a lot of pressure. It could be from family, friends, you know, seeing what other people are doing. Really, I think that if you find something that you're passionate about and you think that you have a greater purpose doing something else, um, it's worth following that, of course, uh, because there's always, you know, financial risk. There's always a lot of risk in starting something new, taking a new path. But there's also spiritual risk in not doing something um, that you believe is really your calling. Um, so let's talk about, you know, what you felt like was your calling. Um, I understand that you fell in love with open source software 25 years ago. Um, and that really, you know, propelled your career, you know, within this space. Um, you know, you worked at a company called Sun Microsystems. I'm curious, you know, talking about those early days working at Sun Microsystems um, and just what was what made you so interested um, in software, in computers, um, in studying this? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's so interesting when you start to kind of find your individual voice and your individual calling is really that you kind of get the fire, you know, because like in a way, like there's life is full of fire, right? And in a way, like it's either you're gonna get the fire from the inside or like someone else is gonna light a fire under your butt up on the outside, right? So like, those are your choices, right? Cause I don't think like, oh, I'm just gonna opt out of the whole fire thing. Like, it's like, no, that, that's not on the table, right? So in a sense, you gotta <clears throat> figure out where your internal fire is, right? And one of the things that happened to me that was just very fortuitous is like, you know, I was working kind of a, it was really interesting. I got to San Francisco and uh, I was working at uh, Wired Magazine, which in, at the time was an independent uh, uh, magazine. And they actually had a whole division that was focused on the internet. And, and so I was working there and I was kind of in a late night working on some software. You know, I ran across this cool programming language, uh, Java programming language, right? And I, I ended up building this kind of system and the whole thing was compiled down to like 14K, right? And I had this crazy thing. I was like late night and and I and I realized the whole thing I was working on could fit on like my old Atari 400 computer, which is like <clears throat> super underpowered, right? But so I was thinking about this and I was thinking like, I just had this aha moment. So like, in a way, like I just started excitedly talking about this technology Right. And eventually what happened was, was that like Sun, who was the creator of the technology, like they, they wanted to hire me. Right. Because they were like, this guy is more excited about this stuff than we are. So like, <clears throat> you know, so in a way, like once you kind of find your inner passion, you kind of find your voice. Right. So, you know, and then you kind of like go out there. Right. You just go out into the world, you know, and the thing that's so amazing is 
conviction is is so is infectious right so it, that's that's the kind of secret lesson for me in venture capital right which is conviction is almost everything right so in a sense like especially in blockchain by the way right because blockchain is basically everybody gets to print money right so if you print money then then everyone has to ask you like well why is this money money right i mean it mm -hmm. could just be a bunch of bits it could just be zeros and ones they have no meaning right and it's then it's definitely not money right and it's it ultimately it's kind of like it's money because because i believe it is right and then you know now there's reasons people can be convinced that it's money because they can use it to buy something right but if they buy something then the person who's selling is actually accepting whatever it is you're giving as money right so the, my point is is that you create an entire economy right and the creation of an economy requires conviction so what i'm really talking about at the end of the day is conviction right and the thing that's amazing as the vc is there's a class of conviction called entrepreneurial conviction and what entrepreneurial conviction is is i can't even think about anything other than what I think is going to happen, right? I'm so convinced that this thing I'm working on is the thing and it's going to happen that I, I like every other thought and every, like even going to the bathroom feels like a waste <laughs> of time, right? It's like, no, I gotta work on this thing, you know? So like, that's the kind of conviction that I think creates entrepreneurship. Now, here's my point is you could have a life and a really interesting life without that level of conviction. Cause that that's a conviction that borders on like madness, right? Because generally you're convinced of something that most people, and at some point, probably almost all people aren't, <laughs> you know, but what, what happens next like what happens is is that you bring that conviction to someone else right so you're like you'll never believe what i discovered you know and then you start describing it and the thing that becomes really interesting is what does your voice sound like right like what does it sound like when you're describing this thing right and in a way like this world is kind of like there's a limited number of kind of leaders and a larger number of followers, right? So in a sense, like, but there's honor in being all of the above, right? Like in a sense, like what's funny about being an investor is an investor is definitely not a leader, right? An investor is definitely a follower, right? Because we follow entrepreneurs, right? So, you know, my feeling is, is that like, you know, you can, you can definitely forge your own path, right? But I think that there's no escape from conviction, right? You know, and conviction is basically like, this is what I think matters. This is what I think is going to happen. This is, you know, the, like the, this is, that's where it all comes from. Right. So in, in a sense, you got to get your believies on. Of course, no conviction is key. And that's why it's amazing. It's a great feeling to find communities of people who, you know, have similar conviction and believe in similar things as well. Um, first off, you know, I loved hearing about your aha moment as well. Really enjoyed hearing about your time at Wired Magazine. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I interviewed Ev Williams um, a few months ago. Um, and his Amazing. aha moment was reading the first edition of Wired Magazine. Uh, that's what made a move from Nebraska to um, Silicon Valley to pursue the internet. So uh, like crazy connection hearing that you were also- I, lo I love that. It's funny, actually, in the early days pre-Twitter, he actually created blogger.com, yep. yeah. right? And what's funny about that was, was I actually sold- their first enterprise license to Sun Microsystems. So no actually, way. Was, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was really, uh, you know, so it's so, it's so funny. Like, so, you know, those were definitely like the early days of that whole like web. That's hilarious. Internet. 
you guys were our age, you know, like trying to figure oh, out this internet thing. And now that's we what it was. People trying to figure out Web3 and, um, you know, just the future of the internet, which we're going to get to. Um, and that would have been a perfect pivot for that. But right before we get to kind of your thoughts on, you know, why you're so bullish on Bitcoin and why you think more 20-somethings should be excited about the internet, I want to talk about your uh, perspective as an investor as well. Um, you started investing early began as an angel investor. Um, you know, I happened to make my, made my first angel investment last year. I know there are a lot of young people who, you know, are busy on Robinhood trying to understand the world of investing, you know, how to do it, where to start. Um, I'm curious, like how many companies, if you're interested in sharing, did you invest in in your 20s? Um, and what is your advice for investors that are interested in starting out? Yeah, so I was not active actively investing, you know, I actually learned I earned my lumps like one of the crazy things I did back then was I invested in Apple stock, which sounds like a great idea. Right. But then what happened was was that the that the stock price went down further. Like it was already way down, right? Because this is post Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs left, you know, yep. so the company was like drowning, right? And and they just had like, a, it was just like a clown car. Like it just, it kept getting worse and worse, right? So so I ended up selling all of it at a loss, which is like so amazing. Like it's such an amazing, you know, and to me, like, you know, it's so funny because my my life experience from that is this, it really has to do with conviction, right? And it has to do with thesis, right? Which is, I'm what, you know, I'm what I call a thesis investor, right? So if you have a thesis, right? And your thesis isn't broken, then don't sell, right? Like, you know, like buy high, sell low is definitely not a thing, right? Like that's not how you do it, right? So in a way, like this has helped me a lot with things like Bitcoin, right? Because Bitcoin does that all the time. It goes down like, oh, it just went down by 50%, yeah. right? And it's kind of like, what you should do is go back to your thesis and be like, do I still think that that's what's going to happen? Right. And if you still, if there's something fundamentally broken, right? Like for let's, let's say some cryptographer breaks Bitcoin and they're like, Hey, I figured out how to open everyone's wallet. Right. So that it's like, okay, your thesis is broken. Right. Sure. Like, okay. You and that's can fine. Now. That's you fine. Can you sell know, now. You can sell now. Right. But like, yes. but, but you know, and, and I'm not, I'm even joking about that. Right. Because it's actually Satoshi even came up with a plan if that happens. Right. Which is, he said, if anyone ever breaks SHA-256, which is the cryptography, he basically said, what you do is you freeze the blockchain so no further transactions can be made. Right. And then what you do is you just replace the signing algorithm and then you start it up again. Right. So the thing that's amazing is, is that even if someone hacked Bitcoin, it wouldn't be the end of Bitcoin. Right. So, so, but what I'm saying is, is like, I don't know, there's some scenario, uh, you know, aliens remove sure. the internet or I, you know, whatever it is like, they, you know, which at this point, where... at this point can happen. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. But my, I guess the thing I'm trying to say is if your thesis ain't broke, like, you know, don't sell. No, that's a great point. That's wonderful <laughs> advice. I learned that in my twenties the hard way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's really, really good advice. I mean, so it just all goes down to like, you know, what are your principles when getting involved with investing, when you get involved with anything in life, you know, really like take time to reflect before you get involved with something or, you know, pursue, um, whether it's a hobby, you know, something you're interested in doing profession, whatever it is, know what you want to get out of that situation. And then yes, like that things can always change in the future, as you're saying, but, um, dealing with volatility, dealing with uncertainty, you got to go back to those first principles. Um, and those can kind of <laughs> calm your, calm your nerves, I believe is what you're saying. So that's really, really good advice. Um, so now we can then pivot to my next question. I mean, so you, um, are very, very involved in, you know, what the future of the internet will look like. You're a general partner at Gummy Crypto Capital, Silicon Valley Investment Fund with over $400 million in assets. 
including early stage investments in unicorns like OpenSea, Yield Guild Games, and the Celsius Network. Um, so you're very, very involved in this space. I'm curious, you know, why you think people my age should also be very excited about the future of the internet? Yeah. So to me, like one of the things that I think is radically underestimated is things like exponential growth, right? Exponentiality is sort of vitally important. And the reason why it's so important is, is that like, you know, what you have to imagine is you have to imagine the difference in working in something that's growing versus working in something that's not growing, right? And so how can you imagine something growing? So one thing you can do with your mind's eye is like, imagine like, I know nobody works at an office anymore, but like, let's say you're at an office, right? Like, so the thing you can symbolize is you can symbolize the growth of that organization by the idea that they are empty chairs. And what I mean by that empty chairs is kind of like, oh, we need to hire a new CFO or, oh, we need to hire a controller. Okay, we need to hire new developers, right? Every single time someone says we need to hire, right? They should bring out empty chairs, right? Because those are empty chairs, right? So to me, like, if you're in an environment where there's plenty of empty chairs, right? It just means that you have room to breathe. And it means that if you want to explore, like, it's like, oh, I want to try software development. Like, you know, everyone will be happy to see that. Everyone will be like, go over there, fill that chair. Like it's empty, right? Like go, go do it, right? Do whatever your dream, like follow your bliss, right? And so that expanding feeling is so critical, right? So to me, like, you know, if you're a person who is a younger person, like you should definitely try to think about reason about like things that are growing. One of the things that kind of is complicated about today is that we're living in an era of like exponential problems, right? Like, for example, if you look at things like global climate change, or if you look at things, you know, like people think that that's exponential, you know, because of things like, oh, well, okay, we lost the permafrost in Greenland, and now we're seeing outgassing of methane, right? So it's sort of like, oh, not only did we lose the permafrost, but now we're getting even more carbon, right? So it's sort of like, wow, like, how do those cycles kind of like drive exponential negative change right and and things like pandemics you know those are obviously very exponential right and exponential phenomenon and problems it's kind of like by the time you think you need to start fixing it like the genie's out of the bottle like you're you know it's too late right so to me the thing that's interesting about this is like how can you identify exponential solutions right which is why i've always been excited by both kind of technology as well as things like social movements, right? Because mm -hmm. social movements have a network effect, so they can become sort of part of a revolution, right? But I think as well, the thing that's exponential becomes like the growth of technology. So to me, when I think about blockchain technology, I really think about the three primary waves, right? And I, it's so, so one of the waves that was really powerful at the beginning when I was in my 20s was this kind of concept called Moore's Law. So Gordon Moore was an Intel uh, pioneer, and he basically asserted that every 18 months, the number of transistors in a chip doubles at the same price, right? So the thing that becomes insane is that the computing power would just keep doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling, right? And if people understand what it means to double and then double again and double again, like it gets bananas. Like, it, like you know, that people don't quite understand what exponential means from a mathematical perspective intuitively, right? But here's what it means. What it means is that there's a couple companies that are pushing 3 trillion and those are Apple and Microsoft. And those were entirely driven from that era, from, from Moore's law. Like, so, so in a sense, it's like, okay, that's a thing, 
right? And then there was like an emerging uh, cohort of trillion dollar uh, franchises that were born in the kind of internet uh, era, right? Which kind of like are the Amazons and the like Googles and the Facebooks, right? Like these, that whole cohort was driven by this thing called Metcalf's Law, right? Which is Metcalf's Law is basically uh, the what's called the network effect, right? So in the network effect, basically the idea is is that if if Alice is happy that Bob is in the platform, right? Then it creates this kind of ever accreting value, right? So if you think about the value of Facebook, it's kind of like, oh, my mom uses Facebook, you know, it could be either positive or negative value, depending on who your mom yeah. is. But like, you know, but my, my point is, is that, you know, if all your friends are there, then it has more value, right? So, so in a sense, like the network effect is super powerful, right? But what I'm describing is I'm describing what's emerging now with blockchain is basically this third both. Or is wave. it a whole new one? Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a third wave, right? It's a huh. third wave in the sense that it's a novel technology platform that has network an accelerate. It has a it actually has like an accelerated network effect, wow. right? And and what I mean is is that if if you're not only does Alice care that Bob joins it. Right. But Alice is actually actively shilling to Bob. <laughs> Alice is like, you got to join this Bitcoin thing, because if Bob joins a Bitcoin, Alice's Bitcoin gets more valuable. Right. So in a sense, like it, it becomes a self-fulfilling network. And, and if you do the math, uh, it took uh, it took Microsoft the uh, 44 years to get to the first trillion in mm -hmm. enterprise value a lot faster to the second. Right. Apple's working on the third. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's gotten really interesting. But like if you look at Google, Google in that cohort took exactly half the time. It took 22 years, right? And if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin took almost exactly half that time. It took 12 years to get to the first trillion, right? So in a sense, you have to kind of look at this as the acceleration of the adoption curve, right? So in a sense, like, you know, the thing that's really crazy, if you look at something like a Bitcoin is, is Bitcoin has tracked, the price has tracked the proportion to the number of active wallets over five orders of magnitude, right? So, you know, uh, it's it, the, the amount of correlation between these numbers is really insane, right? And basically uh, what, what uh, you know, um, Dan, uh, Dan Moorhead from Pantera says, is he basically says that like, you know, if you, if you follow this correlation, eventually Bitcoin will get everyone on earth you know, and if it does that, then it should probably be at least $700,000 per Bitcoin, right? So, you know, it, to me, like, all of this is like, may or may not be true. And there may be things that happen with regulations, or there may be things with technology, there may come a better Bitcoin, some people think that's Ethereum, you know, so like, there's all kinds of forces that, you know, don't guarantee future outcomes. But what I did want to say is I did want to say that this class of phenomenon, the open source financial infrastructures based on blockchain mm -hmm. as an aggregate are like definitely growing uh, in a in a healthy way, you know, and the question becomes sort of what do you think, you know, obviously, it's also filled with like chaos, and it's filled with bad actors and scams and watch your back. But like, you know, but it's, it's, uh, you know, it, there's definitely uh, so far, you know, incredible opportunities and, and incredibly virtuous, hardworking, uh, you know, intelligent people. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're definitely there. Thank you. That was insanely well said. I really enjoyed listening to that. Um, wow. No, that, that was, that was really cool. I mean, just hearing you like break all that down and one more time. So it was Moore's law and what was the name of the second Metcalf's law? Metcalf's, Metcalf's law. law so, was on the networking effects. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah. You should Google that up. It's super interesting. It's basically oh. the value of the network is proportional to the square of the number of connected nodes. It's a it's a super interesting idea oh. of the exponential increase in the value of a network, right? So, you know, that, that's Facebook has a mild recruiting effect where it's sort of like, oh, three out of four friends are, are in sure. there. I should go in there, right? But like, it's nothing like Bitcoin, right? Like oh. Bitcoin's a whole nother level, right? Where people who have it just aggressively shill to people. Oh, I know. Like it's, and that's it, growing. That's it's growing. a little nuts too. And it, it creates a little backlash too, because it's sort of like, uh, you know, the body snatchers, like it's kind of a crazy feeling. <laughs> wow. Well, no, I mean, we live in a really interesting time and uh, I just love that you were able to really share with our audience why, you know, it's good to be excited about this, but also to your own due diligence, to your own research and really stick to your first principles. I mean, that's really important as well. Uh, Miko, I really just enjoyed this discussion a lot. Just want to say thank you so much for joining in their 20s and uh, talking about your professional journey, what you were doing in your 20s, but most importantly, uh, what our audience should be doing in their 20s. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.